Sit your ass Sit your down. Ass down. Sit your ass Sit down. down. Let's talk about, talk the, about suffering. the suffering. It's time to start the pain. The pain. Sit your ass Sit down. Your ass down. We put a mask on and play a part, making people believe that we're something that we're not. Our character needs to be strong, steadfast, stoic, and believable. It's a role of a lifetime. Most people live their lives just this way with very little consequence. If they're uncovered, there may be some brief embarrassment or loss of a relationship. Imagine being cast in a role that relies on your authenticity to survive. There's no retake. There's no second act if you fail. You have one shot to perform, and the ramifications of a poor performance means your acting career is over. Permanently. I'm Kevin Donaldson here with Mike Felice, and on this episode of The Suffering Podcast, we sit down with a very special guest. That's Mike Codella, former uh, retired, not former, retired NYPD sergeant and author of Alphaville 1988. Mike has done some Oscar-worthy performances that he never got recognition for for the Academy. Mike, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. I really do appreciate it. Before we get started, I want to give a big shout out to Toyota of Hackensack. They always take care of us. When you're looking for a car, go to toyotahackensack.com and they're going to find a car for you. And also don't forget to check out Belladama Cigars. Go to belladamacigars.com, put in Suffering 10 for a special discount. Mike, you've traveled all this way to sit here with, you try to get out of the police department, you come and sit down with two other cops. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're quiet, unassuming guy. Thank you very much. No, no Thank problem. You. Thank you. Thank you. How long did it take you to get here? Uh, just a little bit over an hour. From, from, from Staten Island? From Staten Island, yeah. Once you retired, didn't you get out of the city? Not yet. <laughs> yeah, listen, once you're the blood, the, the city's in your blood, you're going to stay there. Yeah. It's like my father's from Jersey City and he will never leave. I don't know. I don't get it. It's too many people. Now, Staten Island's not like really New York City, though. You know, I mean, it's a borough of it, but it's not, you know. It's not Manhattan. You're not Manhattan. Yeah. Right. So before we get into anything, we always take a question from our guests or from, not from our guests, from our audience. This week's social media question comes from Charlie and it says, how has law enforcement taken a toll on your family? I don't even know if you're married, you have kids. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, I'm married. Um, 31 years. I have I'm have. i so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. See, I was going to say, God bless you. But, you know, <laughs> and not, one, not one fight ever. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. what they say. <laughs> Who's the mentally ill one in the relationship that's just not one yeah. fight? <laughs> and forget and, about writing books about Alphaville. <laughs> Write a book about that. Yeah, really. So how, how did it, did it ever take a toll? Did you ever bring it home with you? Um, well, my wife's a retired cop. Really? Ah, so that's good. She vested out at 15 years. Mm-hmm. She, We had the three kids, and uh, after 15 years, she vested out. Oh, really? That's good. Yeah. So she sort of understood what you're doing and what you're getting into. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She was. Uh, she worked in some really tough places, in, on patrol, in uniform, um, and then she retired out of the driving academy. 
See, that's got to be tough because if you go home with a problem and you're feeling down, she'll say, like, suck it up, you punk. (laughs) Yeah. You've been there, done that. Just suck it up. But she also knows, she probably could identify when you were really hurting. You know, and that's a place that Mike and I is, is our home life didn't have that because they weren't cops. They didn't understand. Right. They, They didn't understand that we're trying to shield them from the horrors that we see. But. You know, at the same time, we're hurting. We're, we're we're human beings, right? Was it was it like that? You know, I'm interested to find out. Being married to a cop, another cop, was there any type of understanding? Um, you know, so I did a a lot of undercover work, and it's, a little, it's obviously like you guys know, it's different from from patrol. A world of a difference. It's a world of a difference. Yeah, and um, she actually understood it. Um. And she knew when to give me space, and and when you know, and when there was something going on, and, and we needed we needed to address it. Well, that's what I was going to say. You know, you come home with that look on your face. You know, your wife knows that look, so right. she was just like, you know, yeah, I'm leave you alone un- right now. You went undercover at the mental institution. <laughs> <laughs> look at you undercover at the massage parlor. One time <laughs> Mike, what do you think? How did how did your law enforcement career affect your family? Uh, you know, I I know it affected them on a daily basis. You know, just the look. You know, that, that my wife and kids would give me when I got home, you know, and, and ultimately it's not the only reason, but it pretty much cost me my marriage. And that seems you know, to because be, they, she didn't really understand. That seems to be the way of the world with a lot of officers. Well, divorce think. rate in law enforcement is just like through the roof. Yeah. I think it's as high as at one point it got as high as about 70% and the average divorce rates 50, right. something like that. Yep. So it, it does take a toll on you because- you know, we, we, again, we try to shield our spouses and our kids from what we see, but I'm not so sure that's really the right answer. But see, like, like I said, my thing was, I was a cop in a town that I lived in. So my kids were young back then and they knew, you know, when, when shit was going down, mm, right. you know, and they'd be nervous all the time. My kids still pay the price for it. And my wife definitely does pay the price for it. Uh, my, but my kids, they, they know when dad's in a mood and I still get in my moods, I'm nine years gone and I'm still, I still get in my moods. They know to just leave me alone. Let me go sit. I don't want them growing up with that, that same thing. Cause they're too young. My kids are too young to really understand. Right. Uh, they know, they know I was in a shooting. They know I was in a shooting, but they don't know really the details about it. Um, after my shooting, the one way it affected, it, it, I think it affected me more than my son. <clears throat> uh, my son had pointed a toy gun at me. And I lost it. I lost it. I took the toy gun out of his hand. I snapped it in two and I threw it in the garbage. And I saw that look. You know that look your kids get this blank look. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, man. Sure. You ever, ever experience anything like that with your kids? Uh, You know, you, you got to remember, I'm retired 2003. Mm-hmm. So I'm out a long time. So they were young while I was active, you know, while I was working. So n- not really. They, they, and to be honest, it's kind of, funny or or at least i think it's strange um they don't need there's no like interest of what i did they knew i was a cop and they're older my big one's 25 uh, 26 rather my daughter's 24 my youngest is 23 so now they're older i was gonna say did your kids want to get into law enforcement all uh not my my youngest he's gonna do something with the federal government yeah um but i don't know if not not necessarily because of me They, they don't really have like a dying interest to know what i did they they know the book they haven't read the for the most part they haven't read the book 
<laughs> which I don't know if it's good or bad, you know. When they were young, they were dying. When it first came out, they were dying to read it, and they were too young. You know, this is years, several years ago. And um, since then, they really haven't broken my chops about reading it or looking through it. Or Dad, tell us some more stories. You know? You know, my kid, I, I do get that from my kids. I get, hey, you know, we'll, we'll watch. He, my, my oldest one loves watching Cops. And he'll tell me, Dad, were you ever in a police chase? I'm like, yeah, I was in, I was in several police chases back when you could chase, chase cars. Right. Yeah. And he said, well, what was it like? And I said, well, the desk knew I was doing 70 miles an hour, but in reality, it was probably closer to about 110. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Not now with GPS in the cars. They could tell uh, how fast right. you're going at any point. For, they, you know, the town I, I work in now, I'm, I'm a government employee, and uh, they just had a chase last night. I just heard it today. And the rules are so different. It's 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 just a different job yeah. than when we were on. Forget it. But Mike, you know this this episode we're we're naming this episode the suffering of an undercover because you go through certain things that are foreign to me. I never worked undercover. I was a street guy. I was a I was an accident investigator. I saw you know I saw dead bodies and stuff, but I I didn't deal with it from you. Growing up was 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 that like always your goal to be a cop? Is it something you always work towards? Um, you know, it really wasn't, to be honest. I was, um, just knocking around, you know, I got into trouble. I, you know, my friends weren't the greatest guy, you know, and then, um, I actually knocked around with some wise guy sons and did some stupid stuff. And then I realized I was going nowhere. Literally. Um, one guy got, one guy got arrested. Another guy was shot. And I was like, um, I did some, I think I, in, I talk about it in my book a little bit with uh, Eddie Lino, who's, you know, kind of a popular wise guy. Um, anyway, and after doing that, I was like, you know what, this is not a good life, man. And then uh, the cop came, cop test just happened to come up. I took the test. And when they called me, then I was like, you know what, I'm going to, um, I'm really going to pursue it once I got called. And once I got on the job, I was like, you know, then I really wanted to make a difference so to speak now what time what, what year did you take the test i took the chat the test probably in uh well i came on in 83 so oh, i took okay. it in probably like 81 82 and what precinct were you assigned to when you i was uh, initially assigned as a, i was a housing cop and i was assigned to coney allen oh okay yeah which covered the 6-0 precinct mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and i was just there a short time i was there about six or eight months how long after you got on did you realize that you had this ideal picture of what a cop is and what a cop should be, and in reality, sits <laughs> and what a cop really is? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're talking eighties, so all of you yeah. had mustaches. Every one of you <laughs> had mustaches. That's true. <laughs> the eighties gay porn mustache, yeah. the big Tom Selleck. <laughs> it was it was probably real cool back then. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. <laughs> so, how long did it take you to really get your feet wet in the job? You know, I had a really cool, a really uh, accomplished field training officer who was an older guy, obviously. Uh, he was probably in his late 50s, uh, and he had, a, you know, you have to get out by 62. But he showed us a job walking up, like in the projects, walk up the steps, walk down the steps looking for a collar. Uh, he was a real hands-on guy. He was like going to retire in a, maybe like two years, and he wasn't looking to retire while he was working, you know, he worked and he taught us, you know, he really taught us the job, which, uh, you know, that's what an FTO field training officer is supposed to do. And, and I, I talk about in my book, my first collar, I'll, I'll tell you my first collar. So we're walking on, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Coney Island at all, but a little bit. Yeah. It's not, you know, for the people that don't know, 
um, some people think they think of Coney Island, they think of the Ferris wheel, the beach, and hot dogs. Uh, the Nathan's hot, hot dogs. Nathan's hot dogs. Got this. And then you get people that are coming there specifically for that, and they'll be driving through the projects, which is a ghetto, really uh, low income and a bad neighborhood. And they'll roll their windows down and they'll say, where's Coney Island? And they're only a block away. <laughs> it's like, you're in Coney Island. This is it. And uh, close your windows and, and go home. But uh, so our first call was on 23rd Street and Mermaid Avenue. We walk up to the front of a building. It's a bunch of guys out there smoking pot, drinking loud. Thugs hanging out in front of a building. And as we walk up to the front of the building, the guy Sal, my FTO, all the guys disperse except one guy. He doesn't move. Sal turns to me and says, all right, Mike, lock him up. Lock him. I didn't say anything. I said, all right. What? Yeah, <laughs> what exactly. Doing? I put the guy against the wall. He doesn't fight. He hands behind his back, cuff him up. He had a bicycle outside. Sal said, is that your bike? Yeah, that's my bike. Uh, somebody come take this guy's bike. Some guy, another another guy hanging out, took his bike, put the guy in the car, bring him to the station house. I said, Sal, what, what do I got here? He says, you got a disorderly conduct. <laughs> yeah. I said, what, what? He said, well, he knows the way everybody knows when we approach, especially him, Sal, because he had done it. He had seen this guy. This guy knew who he was. They know when I come to that building, they have to move. They're not supposed to be in front of the building. The old people are afraid to come out of the building. Wives, mothers with their little kids are afraid to come out of the building. They know they're not supposed to be there. When they see me, they got to move. He don't move. He didn't move. He gets arrested. We did a warrant check on him. He had all kinds of warrants for robbery and burglary and assault and everything. And he was a perp. You know, he was a perp. Well, that's a good field training officer. I was I was very fortunate to have one of the best field training officers. And Mike's going to – listen, you might hear a boing in the background because I've heard <laughs> this about Mike as a field training officer. That he was an excellent field training officer. You want a guy with experience. You don't want that old – grizzled veteran who doesn't want to do anything because right. you're a new guy you're full of piss right. and vinegar yep so you got some field training officers that show the guys where to sleep on midnight yeah right. you know bring your pillow like and yeah. do this stuff take your shoes off right hey kid uh, hey kid we don't lock anybody up after 10 o'clock here right yep. if it, i remember one older guy i pulled a car over i think it was like 2 a.m and there was some drizzle but the guy was drunk and the guy the he was a sergeant pulls up next to me he goes you just let everybody in the surrounding town know that you're a rookie that's exactly what he said to me but my field training officer used to come on midnights with me and say this to me. He's like, hey, and I'm still good friends with him to this day. He's like, hey, how you feel? I said, I feel pretty good. He goes, you want to work or you want to relax? Right. Right? I said, I, I really want to work. I didn't take this job to go sleep. I took it to work. Right. Okay, let's go find something. And he was good, just like your field training officer, where he was able to, to make something. You know, you're looking, you're not just looking for disorderly conduct. You're looking for- right. That stuff, and I liked how he protected the neighborhood because, contrary to popular belief, not everybody in the projects is a bad guy. Right, absolutely. Yeah, there's yep. some hardworking people in there. I mean, That's one right. of the people I really learned from, believe it or not, was me. No, yeah, I learned what not to do. <laughs> my chief of police. I mean, my my department was only fifty fifty men, so my chief of police was on the road twenty four hours a day. Mm. Made a motor vehicle stop at like two o'clock in the morning, and he comes and backs me up in a motor vehicle stop. I'm like. What the hell is he doing? And he yeah, wasn't nice. there to like look over your right. shoulder, you know, like, right, right. hey, what do you got? You know, do you think we can get in the glove compartment? Do you think we'd do this? What do you got? And I mean, I learned like that day, I'm right. like, that's how I want to be. Yeah. You always want to be proactive and yep. stuff. It sounded like you, you've had a whole career of being proactive. <laughs> uh, it sounds, I know you've seen a lot. I know you've seen a lot. 
So do you have anything that stands out as, as some real suffering that you want to you point out to us? Um, that's that one call that still sticks with you after all these years. You did a 30-year career, yeah. so. Yeah, so, um, well, I'll tell you one that sticks out. Actually, I have a few, but <clears throat> excuse me. We got an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so one that was really uh, upsetting, um, we get a, a call of a, a difficulty breathing. Anyway, it turns out I, I'm running up far. I run up the steps. It was, uh, I, I don't know if it came over as a kid difficulty breathing or what it came over as. But I remember running up the steps, so it was probably came over some kind of child. And sure as hell, I get there. The, the mother uh, in the projects, uh, of course, is cradling this infant. Oh, no. And the baby's DOA for yeah. baby's cold. But I still try, you know, I was really kind of, I don't know if I was that much of a rookie. I had a couple of months on, but I mean, I was a rookie, but I tried to give it mouth to mouth anyway, thinking, you know, you hear stories, mouth to mouth brings them up and it brings them back. And of course it did. So I took the kid, I give him mouth to mouth. I run down the steps. EMS takes the baby from me. Um, and the, they told me on the scene, basically EMS that the baby's gone, you know, uh, but the mother, the, the palm was full of junk. She was, a, you know, uh, a dope addict. Yeah. Who knows how long this baby was dead? Or maybe starved or who knows what the hell the story was and uh, you know anytime you deal with a kid i'm sure you know you guys yeah. know especially they, when they, you they, see a kid like that that pretty much had no shot no but, shot yeah. but you did you did everything you're supposed to do which is everything you can right in that situation it's a horrible situation unfortunately it's stuff that we deal with all the time but i used to see kids you know packed in cars coming out of newark going to the mall or whatever and you know half of them they got they're they're in dirty clothes, snot running down yep. their nose, and you're looking at the kids and like, man, you guys don't even have a chance. Right, it's true. Yeah, it's it's, it's a true. shame to think yeah, that way. I know it's true, but you know, I mean, in that situation with the the call you were just telling us about, you you get that like feeling of failure, don't you? You know, it's like, could I have done? You drive around the rest of the night. Could I have done more? Could I have done this? Should I have done yeah. that? Should I've seen the signs of that once before? You know. It's tough. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. You're, and, always, and, you're always going to second guess yourself. And that's and, the tough part about law enforcement that nobody sees. Right. You know, you just see the cop driving around in a shiny police car, you know, right. in his nice uniform on. They don't see the, the, the hidden hurt that we have. Right. You know, from going to all those different calls. Sure. I mean, literally, and not to be over dramatic, but you can still feel the baby, what the baby felt like. Yeah. Like I said, it was cold. Well, you know, you think you're going to bring it, you don't think you're going to bring it back to life, but you give it a shot. Right. But if you think about it, it's like the baby was actually like a doll, like a toy. And the mother's cradling it. The mother's junked up. You know, it's the whole thing is a horror. Yeah. I, you know? I, there's just yeah, no, there's no upside to that, if no. the, especially when the baby dies. But yeah. did the, do you know what the after effects were? Because you said the mother was, was a, not a, not a junkie. Junkie is, I've been recently schooled that it's somebody with an addiction problem. Um, do you know what the after effects was? Was the mother charged? <clears throat> I, it, well, you know, a uh, thing like that, they have to, the baby has to get all autopsy on the baby and see if it, it could have been a SIDS death. Could have, like I said, who knows what happened? Could have been suffocated. Who knows? So when they, by the time they uh, come back with the results, the detectives will either make a call or not make a call. BC uh, Bureau of Child Welfare obviously gets notified. So no, I, I don't, I don't know. But you know. see, that's the other thing about being like in patrol. We never figured, we never heard what happened. You know, we right. never got an outcome True. of something. You know, it always went to the detectives. Right. They figured out the case. If they solved it, they were the heroes. Right. But uh, as a patrolman, 
I always checked up on him, especially that one. I'm sure you checked up on it yeah. just because of personal interest more right. than anything else. Not yep. like you could do anything, but it sounds like you had a, a an interesting career and that's just the beginning. And right. I know you get further into police work and on a level that I, I'm very interested in, but you had mentioned something earlier. You grew up around a lot of, a lot of wise guys and you saw what the other side was. Right. How did that? How do you think that fared in your police career? N- having that burden of knowledge, I guess, yeah. would be the right word. Um, I think it, it it actually, I think it was a big asset. Whether it was on patrol or just plain clothes and in, in like an anti crime unit or or as an undercover, because you get to think, what would I do if I was on that? If if I was this bad guy or this perp, what would I be thinking? What would I be doing? <clears throat> and a lot of people don't have that perspective. They only have the perspective of being a cop looking at a perp or a bad guy as opposed to I know what I would be thinking if I was him you know I say that all the time you know now they put such a premium on collars to become a cop you're gonna get the book smart guy now right I want the street smart guy to be my partner you know right I'm not saying someone who broke the law growing up but they, you know, they dabbled along that line you know back and forth over the line between good and bad and because you have to be able to think like a criminal right to be a cop Right. Yeah, but unfortunately, the books that you read, you had to use crayons to color them in. <laughs> they didn't. I didn't read them. They didn't have words. <laughs> Pop ups. <laughs> but that's what we do as police officers. We we break. That was a suffering story. I got a, like a paper cut from one of those pop ups. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't go out on six and six. I tried. It was on my trigger finger too. <laughs> so you you learned a lot from the people you hang around because I did the same thing. I learned a lot from the people. I grew up with, I grew up with some, like you, I grew Mm -hmm. up around a lot of wise guys in the Atlantic City area. But now to the detriment of my kids, I already know what they're going to do. And these poor kids, man, I know when they're lying. You know, you know, you, 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 I'm sure you did this. You look at somebody's face and you know whether they're telling the truth or whether they're lying. It doesn't fare well for my kids. They they really can't get away with the same shit I got away with. Yeah. How can they? Yeah. Really? So even if I wasn't lying, I still get smacked. You know, so my father used to hit me all the time and say, that's because you did nothing wrong. He said, imagine what you'd get if you did something wrong. Your father and my father must have known each other. But you, you do, on the streets as a kid, did you ever see any true violence out of these guys or did they keep that hidden? Um, you mean from the from the adults? From the wise guys. No, no, not really. No, I mean, um, I dealt with them on a very rare occasion. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew what they were capable of because I knew who they were. I knew the stories behind them. Um, but no, I, uh, well, the one incident, they, yeah, I shouldn't say no. We had a, uh, an incident with Bruno Facciolo. That one I don't know. So he was, uh, he was a, a, a Lucchese guy. His brother was a Gambino guy. And they're the guys that brought Tommy Simone in Goodfellas to his yeah. death. Yeah. One of them. I, I think the brother because, of their relation, because they were brothers. One was with the Gambinos and one was with the Lucchese's. The Lucchese's actually whacked or killed Tommy DeSimone mm-hmm. on behalf of the Gambino family. So they're kind of like a well-known uh, family, the, the Facciola brothers. And and his daughter, his niece, Carla, was in um, Mob Wives. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Now I know who it is. Right. Now I know who it is. Right. Yeah. So we, when we were young, we happened to stop in front of his pizzeria. And we didn't go there often. We didn't hang out there. We were just uh, like 17 years old, and we just happened to stop and knock around in front. And he came out. We, now, we knew who Bruno was by name, but we didn't know who he was. We didn't know physically what he looked like. 
but he was a well-known guy in our neighborhood and everybody knew Bruno. Uh, and my friend's fathers were connected guys and uh, the one guy, one of my friend's fathers owned the bar, that Vic Amuso's bar that Vic hung out in. Anyway, Bruno comes out and he tells us to leave and we don't leave. <laughs> and he comes out again and tells us to leave. And we're like, oh, go. We don't know where he is. You go know? away, old man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> go back in your, go make your pizzas, right? <laughs> go get your shine box. Yeah. And he, and at this point, um, I just leave. Me and one of the other guys, we're done for the night. Uh, we, we used to play, you know, high school football. We had practice the next day. We were leaving. We left. Well, Bruno comes out again because my friends still don't leave with a baseball bat. And now my friends take the bat from him and do a number on him. Well, of oh, course they do. They do a number on Bruno. Yes. Holy cow! Yeah. Ouch. Yeah, they did. A, they did a number on him. Uh, and like I said, one of one of these guys' fathers is is, is Vic Amuso's uh, good friend. He owns the bar that Vic's you know clubhouse or hangs out in, and um, another guy's father of, of these guys. Anyway, the bottom line is, Bruno's able to find out everybody that was there, and who did him in. Now I, we assume that. One of these guys, one of us, we know we have a we have an idea who it is actually. Ratted. Because his father was a uh uh not Vic's guy, not that family. The other guy's father was a connected guy. He must have went to them and said, Look, we'll give you everybody that was there if you you know, you don't hurt my son, basically. And that's what happened. And all my friends, one of them got shot, another one got a plate put in his head. The other guy was in a hospital for months, and the other one just took off. Uh, he took off for a long time. He didn't come back for quite a few months. Holy cow. And if I was there, if I wasn't lucky enough to walk away, my name, I'm sure, obviously would have been one of the ones that was given to him. Talk about a different career trajectory. Yeah. Okay, you know, Yeah. you might not have been capable of taking right. the exam. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So you, you, let's fast forward again. You, you, you get on the job. You seem to have really loved the job. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you don't. You love the job because nobody stays thirty years in a job they don't like. And at what point did you find out that this is more than just a job? Oh, it's a lifestyle at yeah. that point. Not a when when I was, um, I had a kid in my a friend of mine in my academy class. I was really good friends with his brother, and this particular kid was in my academy class, and his father was an emergency service cop. And every once in a while, he would drive us to the academy, which is right in the same building, basically, as emergency service, the uh, police academy. And every once in a while, he'd take a shortcut down uh, Alphabet City. Mm-hmm. So instead of taking the FDR drive to 23rd Street, he would take the FDR drive to Housing Street, get off there, and take a, you, you know, when there's traffic on the highway, he'd take the streets. And this one particular day, or whenever he would take us there, whenever he would take us, there was um, lines of people. Uh, and I, I couldn't fathom what, what they were doing. I'm like, what, what are they doing? What, what's going on here? And he saw they're waiting to cop. Cop dope. Yeah, waiting to cop dope. I'm like, a line? A, 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 an orderly line <laughs> waiting to cop dope? I'm like, where were the, where, where's the police? Respectful junkies. You know, you can't yeah. cut that line. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing. And I don't mean like a line of three or four people. I mean a line of like 20, 30 people, like if they were going to a concert. And he was like, well, the NYPD was not really allowed to make narcotics collars since the NAP commission because they felt wherever there's drugs, there's money. So they kept the, um And the city in general didn't mind the heroin um, being contained in this area. 
because the junkies went there, the dealers went there, and it, it wasn't all over. Basically, it was contained in Alphabet City, uh, the, like the heroin capital of the world, they, they used to call it. So he said, so basically, they let them function. You know, it's a functioning, um, the city lets them function, basically. And I, I, was, I, couldn't, I couldn't get over it. And every time we'd go down there, I, was, I, I just was amazed at how, how it worked. Well, I went to Coney Island initially for six months, seven months, and then I, I put my papers in because I wanted to go down there. And uh, I really I really wanted to do a number on them, see what I can do down there, you know? Well, that was the the heroin that was probably coming in from Bumpy Bumpy Johnson? No, it was uh, Johnson was, I think, earlier. This was Chinese heroin. Oh, it was, okay. Yeah, from, right. China, from China, China White, usually. But did you ever did you ever make a dent, or it was just yeah? A- no, we did, man. We took the we uh, in uniform. I hooked up with a, a guy from my neighborhood. Uh, he, I didn't know him. I knew him from the police academy. And you know when you just uh, jive with somebody, they yeah, just connect. You know, like well, we thought the same, and he was a knock around guy, and um, so we we worked together in uniform. We made a lot of drug collars. Um, they put us in a plainclothes unit. It was a federally funded, it was called Operation 8. And there was four cops and a sergeant. And two of the cops we were replacing were making detectives. So we took their spot. And um, it was just the eight projects in the Alphabet City, the worst projects in Alphabet City. That's why they called it Operation 8. And overtime was paid from the from federal government and our checks from the federal government, the car, everything was federally funded. And... Um, we really got to know these drug dealers couldn't put a brand of heroin out on the street without us knowing whose brand it was, uh, how long it's been out, who's dealing for. We had so many informants trying to ingratiate themselves with us because they'd, they'd say, if I uh, tell you who's dealing over there, would you let me uh, open up today over here? And we would. You know, oh, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, I, I'm. Cost yeah, of doing business. You know, I, I talk about it in my book. It's not, wasn't. Did the ends justify the means? That's the bottom line. You know, it was we. we well, it's we, either you get no heroin off the street, or you get as much as you can. Some of it's got to slip through the cracks. It's, right. That's all. You know. It, I it mean, makes sense. You know, I mean, obviously, it wasn't legal what we were doing. First of all, you can't pay informants out of your pocket, which we did normally. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to register them. None of these guys yeah. would want them to be registered. Who wants mm-hmm. it? They don't want their prints. The the old taken. registered CI, the confidential informant. Yeah. Once right. you once you they sign their name to paper, not a rat. Right. But if they're telling you on the sly. Right. And they were afraid to get caught, you know, having their picture taken, their ID taken. They didn't want that. And really what they wanted to do was make money, you know, and um, and, and we did. We either paid them cash. We paid them with other people's dope. We we did those things that were, we knew we weren't doing, but we did it for the bigger, the, the bigger greater picture. good. Yeah, so, so absolutely. You know, it's there's a term I recently heard is don't trip over a dime to pick up a penny. And that sounds like something that you didn't do. I mean, you got the bigger picture out, right. not, not reaching for that small little little amount. Right. But now you you saw a lot of money. Right. You had to see a lot of money if there's that much drugs where you're where you're located. Did you ever? Did it ever cross? I'm Any, not. I know yeah, you didn't. I know you didn't. <laughs> did you? The temptation has got to be crazy. You know, it's really funny because I was young. I mean, I came on a job when I was. 20 just turning 21 making twenty six thousand dollars a year probably something yeah but like i that. didn't need money to be honest you know i i really I, I at first i lived at home for a while then i had a little bullshit apartment i didn't wasn't like i needed money you know i was happy with my salary um it never crossed my and you know it wasn't like i wasn't gonna you gotta remember we worked the same area for so many years um 
in uniform and then in plain clothes. When I was in plain clothes on there, it wasn't like I was on the cover. We were like an anti-crime. So everybody knew us. And you can't take money from a guy and expect that guy to respect you tomorrow or for the other bad guys to respect you. You know, like, so they knew they couldn't, they couldn't buy us. It, there was no, you know, there was no amount of money that would buy us. And um, so no, I was never tempted. Um, and like, I, we we actually made one or two um, bribery collars. You know, we called IAB, which we hate to do deal with IAB, but this guy was, he promised us this and that. And we just called IAB. We, we, they wired us up and the guy made all these promises and locked him up. That was just a charge on top of the charge. Um, so to answer your question, I'm, I was really never, t- and again, maybe because I didn't need the money, but, it, and, and, and honestly, I don't want to lower myself to where these guys own me. Well, I'm trying to put a, I'm trying to paint a picture for people listening is you got a, you got a young guy seeing these criminals living better than you are, you know, driving nice cars, wearing fancy clothes, cash always hanging out of their pocket. Just imagine that. Imagine the the fortitude and resiliency that you had to exhibit in order to not take that temptation. I, I my hat's off to you for not because I I'm not saying because I, I was offered actually as a cop I was never offered a bribe and my current job had been offered three. <laughs> but um, surprised I, you were offered a job as a cop. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus God, you know my mother's listening to this. Shit. No, my mother doesn't <laughs> listen to us. My mother doesn't listen to us. So uh, that plain clothes detail, did that segue, was that an easy segue into uh, undercover work? How were you approached in order to do that? Um, well, what happened was, like I said, we knew everyone down in Alphabet City, literally everyone. Um, and the DEA was doing a case. They did a case, and a couple of their main targets walked. They had to release them. They weren't, the U.S. attorney wouldn't prosecute them. So... Um, one of the DEA agents we had done stuff for. He would he'd give us a picture. He say hey, there was this guy, little Hector, and he was looking for this kid Hector. I, I, he had so much on this guy, but they couldn't get him. And we're like, sure, we see Hector all the time. He's like, oh, and we picked him up. And then he had another guy, the guy Caesar, who was also friends with Hector. Yeah, we and we picked him up. So the DEA knew who we were. Whenever they needed a perp in Alphabet City, they came to me and me and my partner. Well, when these guys dropped the ball, so to speak, on that big case, although they didn't, but I don't want to say they dropped the ball, but the U.S. attorney didn't prosecute. Those agents said, well, you know, you should reach out to these two guys, meaning me and my partner. Um, they know everybody. Do so, you want to give a shout out to your partner or you want to leave his name out of it? Um, well, his, work? No, his name is Jeff Sear. Okay. But but he's passed on. Oh, uh, that's, a, that's, that's a yeah. sin. Yeah, hey, yeah. well, listen, then, then definitely mention his name because, yeah. number one, he can't sue you. Yeah. But number two, <laughs> it sounds like he was a really good cop. He was and, a good and I cop. always I always like to highlight the good cops. Yeah. And let world. his legacy live on. I live ne- I, I work next to okay, maybe <laughs> to, to, to legacy. <laughs> Better not live on. <laughs> so, yeah. all Yeah, yeah Jeff, he was a great cop, actually. It sounds like he, he did yeah. right by everybody. Yeah, we had a good time. Yeah. A lot of fun. It was actually, going to work was... Like a privilege. Yeah, it was, yeah, you don't you really. don't consider it work. Yeah, no, it was, you know, just yeah. going out to hang with. Exactly. Now, I'm, I'm sure you built up a, a, a relationship with Jeff outside the job, also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're like, I mean, best we would actually get called uh, from these guys in the middle of the night, and we'd run out and do stuff in the middle of the night off duty on our own. I mean, it, yeah. you know, it was really crazy. That's a really rare occurrence now. Nowadays, you want me to come out? Everybody's yeah. just got their hand out. Yeah, their hand is out first before anything, and they're making five times the amount of money yeah. you started out at. Well, we really had. An, I mean, I hate to 
pat myself on the back, but we really had a vested interest in cleaning the neighborhood up, really. So if somebody said, you know, we got something, you know, can you help us with this or something's going on? We just go and we try, you know, off the record we go. We wouldn't go on, you know, we wouldn't be on duty, but we just go and see what we can do. But that's how the DEA found us, through the other agents. They gave us a bunch of pictures. We knew everybody. So they sucked us into the DEA. They literally called the chief. The chief said, he was happy about the whole thing. He's like, yeah, take them. If they could. And we ended up doing a really big case with the DEA. So would you go like on loan to the DEA? or did Yeah. Just- yeah. It, uh, the regular division, not even a task force group, a regular group 34. Um, we won loan to them. We did this case. We took 40 Alphabet City dealers out. And main, main, you know, main guys, yeah. uh, not the street level guys, right? Did you ever do any jobs with Jerry Spezial? When we were on a, we were on a wiretap at the same time. They were actually in the same room. Him and uh, Carrot, Carrot, Bernie Carrot. They were in the same room with us at the same, at the time we were doing a one wire. Yeah, because uh, they're they're both friendly with us. So, um, I was always wondering that. You know, you've you've had this storied career of undercover work, and I know they did a lot of stuff. I know they wrote the book on cell phone wiretaps, which was probably was is that at the same time now? Uh, uh yeah. Yeah. yeah, just about, yeah. Yeah, that's that's some cuz that was some cutting edge stuff. Yes. Everybody thought, "Hey, listen, if I got a cell phone, they can't track me." But that's not really the case. We actually did a case where not this case, another case where um we may believe we not I didn't do the undercover work, but we may believe we had a cell phone store. And the bad guy came in and we said, "Just take the phone, take it." So uh, you don't even need a warrant cuz it's your it's my property. Wow. And that's you're smart. talking on my property. So here, yeah, just take the phone, it's on us. And the guy would talk his ass off on the phone. Wow, that's a great that's a great little yeah. little thing there. But th- I had read somewhere that you have some sort of strange connection to Jay Z through your yes. undercover work. <laughs> yeah, through your funny. undercover work. Yeah. And um, do you want to get into a little bit of that? Yeah, I don't mind. Uh, so when this case finished, the chief had asked. Uh, well, he asked me to do a Coney Island case, and then after I think this came maybe after the Coney Island case, but. Um, Red Hook was going crazy. Red Hook Projects in Brooklyn. Uh, Red Hook and Gowanus. And the shootings were out of control. So he asked me if I could go there and see if we could start something up. So I couldn't go with surveillance because it's bad enough they see one white guy. If they see 10 white guys in 10 different cars, I would have never got anything accomplished. So what I used to do is I used to wear like, so, you know, soft clothes, a t-shirt, a tank top, uh, so they would see I didn't have a wire and I didn't have a gun. I didn't carry a gun. <clears throat> and I'd go in the projects and I'd use pay phones and just let them, let these bad guys see me, you know? And eventually I ended up meeting a, a, a girl down there. And um, <clears throat> actually what, what, what happened was first I met one group of guys on my own. They were fixing a car and I came over and started talking to them about the car. Um, and I ended up buying into them. They weren't the main guys that were doing these shootings. Anyway, I end up meeting this girl who introduces me to these guys, and they're the guys doing the shootings. And they're the really bad guys. He calls himself, uh, now he's on YouTube, he's all over YouTube. He calls himself the Brooklyn Don. And he was one of the main targets that the detectives were looking looking at for years for doing a lot of shootings and killings. And, and he had done some time, and he was a bad guy. Anyway, he had actually done a shooting with Jay-Z. This is according to him. Um, and he supposedly took the rap for Jay-Z because he knew Jay-Z was going to blow up. His career was blowing up. I don't, I don't know. 
how how benevolent he is and how honest he is, but he says he took the rap so Jay Z's career could blow up. Anyway, he does a he does a uh, this happened out I think in not in New York maybe uh, I don't know, Massachusetts or something. He does a does a, a homicide I think or maybe just a shooting. He does a few years. He comes out and I meet him, and he thinks I'm like a half a wise guy and and he brings so I, I set up a deal because. In the 80s, the crack epidemic was so bad, 80s and 90s. I think it was if you have 40 grams of crack, not coke, cooked up crack cocaine, yeah. it's the same as having like five or 10 kilos of cocaine. Whoa. Yeah, it's because remember, they wanted to- They remember, wanted to get it off the street, yeah, right? Yeah, I yeah. think Bush held up the, the bought cocaine and he, they bought it right in the park across the street from the White House, President Bush. Yeah. That's up. <clears throat> so they made the law, and I, I forgot what the, the name of the law was, but- to deter people from selling crack, they slammed you. So I meet this guy and I order three ounces of cooked cocaine, crack cocaine, because then I sink them in for good. It's over forty grams. It's 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 quite a few grams over forty. I I want to stop you for one minute. I hate to judge people by their appearance, but there is no way you fit in in the projects. All right, no, with not with a vowel at the end of your name. No, how did you? They thought he was all mobbed up, so they're afraid of him. Is that what it was? They, they did. Th they thought you were mobbed up. Yeah, and they figured that I, there must be something going on here for this guy to just walk in here. We ain't going to fuck with him. And not, <laughs> not uh, yeah, be afraid Either of that us. You got balls the size of cantaloupes, <laughs> man. <It's> just... <laughs> yeah, they, they thought that, yeah, they were, a little, they were a little taken back by me just walking around with a tank top on and, you know, no gun and stuff. So when I meet, when I negotiate this three-ounce deal of uh, crack, we meet, and he had a, a Jeep at the time with blacked-out windows, and forerunners were, uh, there weren't that many Jeeps on the road in the late 80s or early 90s. They were out there, but kind of unusual. And it was all blacked-out tinted windows, and I get in the car with him and his brother, and he gives me a bag. He says, okay, all right, I'm about to give him the money. And he says, are you going to try it? I'm like, try it. I don't fucking smoke Coke, crack, crack. He said, no, no, that's Coke. I'm like, bro, I don't want Coke. <laughs> I could get coke anywhere. I'm coming to you because you guys are the, supposedly the guys that know how to the cook this shit. big crack guys. Yeah. And I give it back to him. I said, now go make, go cook this up. So he goes home. We meet the next, I think the next day or later that night. And he brings me back three ounces of cooked cocaine. And he, he was sunk. Yeah. That was it. And he, he was, knew it probably after he got taken in. When he got taken in. And he talks about how he was set up by the, not set up, how he was targeted by the feds. And I don't know if we could say we actually targeted him, but we ended up getting the guy that, you know, we wanted. And he talks about how J.D. sings about him, and J.D. actually stole his persona on these songs. And J.D. actually mentions him in, in a couple of songs and uh, talks about uh, using the McDonald's on 142nd and Broadway, uh, Broadway to do a deal. And that's why I did deals with this guy. So, yeah, that's this guy is actually like a... But that's not the only high-profile case you worked on. Like I said, I've done I've done as much research as I can on you. Am I to understand that you worked on the Eton Pates? Yes, I worked okay. on Eton. So give us that that was real high profile. Uh, you I didn't get much more high profile than that in New York, right? Yeah. And so it's still in the, it's still still out there now. Just give us a little background on the Eton <clears throat> Pates case. Yeah. So Eton Pates was uh, a little boy that was on in 1979. He was going to go to school for the first time. By himself. The was, mother was going to let him take, walk to the school bus by himself. He was Hasidic, right? Was it? 
Was he acidic or was he? The, the, yeah, uh, I don't know if they. I don't think they're acidic. They're just religious, right. religious Jews. Um, and she was watch, the mother was watching the little boy out the window, and she literally, according to all accounts, turned her head for a minute. When she turned her head back, the kid was gone, and he never was seen again. And he was actually the first um, milk carton kid, right? Exactly. Yeah, he's the first milk carton kid. I don't know how I I, I right. didn't remember that, but that's that's what I do remember. You should have been on a milk carton. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're on a sour milk carton. <laughs> the but that that right there, did you worked on? There was that one guy who copped to it, right? Right. So, um, it went up until just a few years ago, unsolved, basically. And of course, I didn't work on it in 1979. I was a kid. Hmm. But I do remember being on the buses and seeing uh, the the missing person, Ethan Pace. Uh, Reagan made May twenty fifth uh, National Missing Child Day because of because of the kid. Um, but anyway, it went unsolved, and then they eventually arrest a guy named Hernandez. I don't remember. His I was first say name. it was Gutierrez or Hernandez. Hernandez. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, And the first trial was a mistrial, and then they retried him and they convicted him. Did, did they Wait, find say, the body? Didn't he fess it? Didn't he fess up though, and he still had a mistrial? Well, he's got a lot. That's the thing. So they charge this guy who has a history of mental mental disorder, mental disease. His family uh, says that he's you know obviously he's not all there, and he hasn't been there for his whole life basically. And after all these years, he came forward saying he's the one who took the kid and killed him in the basement of, of Bodega, right not far from where he was missing. And the bottom line is, who knows if it's, if he was actually telling the truth. Yeah. Now, I had nothing to do with the Hernandez part of it, with that guy. Um, my investigation's completely different. And I'm not saying my investigation is correct or incorrect. Um, and I don't know if Hernandez did it or if... I know there's a lot of controversy yeah. whether he did it or not. Right. Did, they, did they find the body? They, they no. dug up a basement. Uh, they dug up a no. They yeah. never found the body. They never found the body. It would have sinned. So your 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 way into that was from a different angle, right? All right, completely and, different. And it was it was through cults. Yeah. So, um, for a short time, I was in the missing person unit, NYPD, and um, I get a call from an inmate from Attica, and he, I always, I kind of remember him asking for me by name, but I may be wrong because it was a long time ago. But for some reason, I thought he, the inmate asked for me, but I may be wrong. But in any event, I get on the phone with this guy and he tells me that he has information regarding Eton Pate, but he, he screws up the name. Um, He doesn't say Eton. He, I, I forgot how he says the name, but he screws up the first name and he butchers the, na- the last name a little bit. Which kind of led me to think that maybe there is something to this guy. Because if he was going to call me up with a bullshit story. It would be correct. He would have his ducks in a row. I mean, that's what I thought anyway. So I kind of perked my ears up a little bit. And he tells me he's got information regarding the kid uh, that he's been holding in for quite a few years. He's due for parole and he wants to get out. And that's why he wants to talk. So I obviously make the trip up to Attica to talk to this guy. Um. Want me to go into it? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Because I know it ties into another it big does. case. Yeah, it does. They all tie, they kind yeah. of tie in. <laughs> so we, we go up to Attica, uh, and he's a big, uh, he's like a 350, 400-pound guy. He's a biker, vice president of a biker gang called the Rat Pack, which is a legitimate, I've 
looked into it then. I've looked into it even after after I retired. I even looked into it more because I ran into somebody that knew them, knew the Rat Pack. And it was a legitimate 1% by gang un- under, I think, the Hells Angels, but maybe not. Maybe under, maybe the Pagans, Mongols. But anyway, they're under another big uh, club. Um, anyway, he now he's in Attica for sodomizing his infant daughter. Holy cow. And I think he had another kid that he was in for, and the wife was involved also. The wife flipped on him. Uh, but even the it's kind of the whole thing is kind of so coincidental because I even knew the guy who locked him up before I was a cop, and the guy who locked him up wasn't was in the police academy at the time, and he was told again it's a real coincidence. But I know this guy. Uh, I haven't spoke to him in years, but apparently the biker's babysitter told this friend of mine that this guy's having sex with his daughter. The, the friend of mine actually rode a bike and was a tough guy. He's in the police academy. Of course, they don't know that. And he starts to hang around with them. And he actually catches in the act, oh my the God. guy. So he locks him up and he locks another biker up who was at, in the apartment or in the house. There's a special place in hell for these people. Yeah. There right. really is. But it ties into the what he tells me is, so now when I go up to see him, um, of course, I know what he's in the joint for. Um, he tells me that, him and his biker gang were contracted to do security for this satanic cult up in Westchester and Yonkers. And they would go up there wearing their colors and they'd keep the cops away if the cops were to intervene. And they would keep any pain in the ass civilians away if they were going to try to get into these parties. Um, and he, he secures the places so frequently that they all get to, they get to know him. The higher ups in this, uh, it's actually satanic rituals going on in these in these houses, these mansions. Um, they they get to know him by him being there so frequently that he becomes involved. They let him in, and they let the president of the biker club in, and they let uh, I think one other guy in. Uh, and his drugs and sex, and I, you know, I've always said that the satanic shit is just a backdrop for the sex and drugs. You know what I mean? It's a front. It's like a front, just to get you know, gullible people involved and all that stuff. But anyway, he's there one day and according to him, there's a makeshift author. They call out the kid and it's this kid. And they measure him with a rope. And as they're going to sacrifice him, he leaves. He leaves because he doesn't want to see it. But perps always do that anyway. They take themselves out of the actual crime scene, right? Um, But he says that that's, um, what really happened to the kid, and they sacrifice him, and that's. A, but that also ties into the next case, right? Which is Son of Sam, right? And is that the same cult? Yes. Yeah, so according to this guy, it's the Son of Sam. And when Berkowitz was originally arrested, he said that he Berkowitz killed on behalf of his neighbor's dog. Yeah, his dog. Right. He recanted that a few years later. Sam was the dog. Was it? Sam was the neighbor. Was the neighbor? The son of Sam was the yeah. Well, I know he's right. he's still talking about this portion of his life as as it's all part of a satanic cult. He's been pushing that narrative for a long time. Well, he when he started to talk about it, they actually got him in jail and they cut his face. They tried they dismissed his jugular by, I don't know, a quarter of an inch. And he hasn't talked in years. And he's born again and um all that stuff, but but he refuses to talk one way or the other. Uh, and his reasoning is he still has 
family who's alive, and the way they got him, they could get his family. Hmm. Th- that's that's according to him. Um, and again, I don't. But yes, this is the same cult that he was involved with. And according to the guy, the inmate whose nickname is Tiny, his, <laughs> yeah, his real name is John Lentini. He uh, he's he had actually seen Berkowitz um, in passing. I always wondered about that because here's a guy who looks like a loner. He's got the Andy Kaufman haircut. He had those faraway eyes too. Yeah, I just I never I watched a lot of things on David Berkowitz, just the psychology behind it. I never truly believed that he's the only one. What is it, the forty four cal- caliber right, killer? Forty four caliber killer. Yeah, right. I just never believed that, and it's it's pretty. I mean, you're you got to understand something. You're you're talking about living history with those two cases alone. That's living history, and right. the people who are intimately involved in those cases, you know, they're, they're going their separate ways. You know, you you decide after all this stuff, mm. it's time to hang it up. Was it a tough decision for you, or was just it was just your time? Um, you know, honestly, I had more problems with bosses on this job, and mm. I'm not a boss fighter. Mm. I, I don't mean problems where um, that. that well, I did 20 in the, uh, I retired out of the West African Task Force and the Secret Service uh, Electronic Crimes. It, it was, there were two task forces in the Secret Service and I was a sergeant. And NYPD, the bosses, were so afraid that something was something positive was going to make the paper and they weren't going to be, NYPD's name wasn't going to be front and center. I, I'm, I'm, this is a God's honest truth. We had hit a door. Now, I was good friends with one of the Secret Service supervisors, a guy named Bob Weaver, a really good guy. I mean, a really good guy. All the all the Secret Service agents are hard workers. We didn't. I didn't do protection. We did case. You know, we did investigation. Yeah, yeah. So um, we hit the door. I don't remember exactly what case it was, but it was going to be a high profile case. Uh, you know, I I told the chief prior and what we were doing, and we hit the door. As soon as we hit the door. We secured it, you know, everybody's handcuffed. I go outside to call the chief because I was. it was so ingrained in my head that if Secret Service, and Secret Service wasn't going to do that. They, they, they're not publicity hounds at all, I, I, I promise you. They could care less. But if in the event it would have made the papers, let's say right there and then, let's just say they got uh, somebody from the newspaper found out about it, and our name wasn't front and center, they were going to hang me. So I walk outside and I call the I call the chief up. I said, "All right, we got four guys, whatever, four guys under. So far, we we recovered this and this. I'll let you know." And I hang up, and the guy Bob Weaver's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I had to call my chief." He's like, "Yeah, but we're not even done here." I says, "I know we're not done, but I had to call him because they're so afraid that we're not going to be yeah, someone else is going to take the credit." And- yeah, uh, and I was like, "But." Is he- and he and Bob was like, oh, well, you know, like I say, he could care less about the press. He's like, all right. I'm like, you know, you're fucking right. What am I doing? I'm worrying about these bosses. I have more problems with bosses. And I'm like, you know what? I did 20 years. And he's a boss, by it. the way. I just want to point that out. He's, he's a boss. <laughs> yeah, but I wasn't your typical boss. No, I was, that's, I was, I I was a road that. boss. You know, I wasn't an administrative guy or anything like right. that. You know? Well, you should have been. I made it up to lieutenant and. <laughs> I, I always said you'd never know I was a boss because I wasn't a go do this, go do that. Right. Let's go do this. No. But right, you, right, right, right. you end up retiring. And, and, you know, it seems like you've taken care of yourself, which is contrary to a normal retired cop. Right. You know, and, and that that reminds me. So You didn't put on a retired 25, you know. Yeah, right. So we, one of our sponsors is a, is a company called XBody. If you go to XBodyUS.com and they, they specialize 
we have a liaison. They specialize in first responders. Mm. And it's really body health because body health equates to mental health, which, right. you know, our, we, we focus heavily on mental health. Um, so, yeah, just everybody go take a look at X-Body US. You, but you got something interesting going on. You, you're real big into Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I know you're a third-degree black belt. How important is it to you to take care of your body for your mental well-being? Um, well, you know, it's just something I've always done, really. Yeah. And I think if I wasn't doing it, I think I'd have a, a, a bit of an issue. I feel it goes pretty much hand in hand. Well, I'm a, a lot of it's stress release also. Right. You know, you, you, we get so much stress from the job, you eat that stress or you go work it off. Right. I'm a big believer in that every cop needs to go through Brazilian jiu-jitsu, at least make it to, say, purple belt, right. something along those lines. Because somebody who doesn't know how to use their hands, especially in this modern climate, somebody who doesn't know how to use their hands on might go a little quicker to the weapon. And now, whether right, wrong, it doesn't right. matter. You're you're tried in the court of public appeal. Do you, would you agree with that statement, knowing Absolutely. what you know? Yeah. I mean, um, first of all, like I, I, I actually mentioned this a few times in my book. If you pull your gun and a guy tells you, go scratch your go, ass. Yeah, go fuck off. Now what? Now what? Now you got a paperweight in your hand. Yeah. yeah. What do now, you do? Now you get a, and, and the most embarrassing thing would be to reholster and right. then go hands on. Right. Right. But you're also at a deficit. Now you're, you got one hand because you can't let go of this. Right. I, I was, we were taught in the academy, throw it as far away as you can. But even there, there's dangers in that. Yeah, absolutely. But you, you just create this new life after retirement. Right. And where you got the Codella Academy, which is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. You write Alphaville 1988. And I know you've been in a couple movies as well. Right. So where can, where can our audience find you? Let's, let's talk about some of the stuff that you're doing now. Okay. Um, I have a YouTube page. Uh, YouTube channel, rather. It's uh, Mike Cadella up against the wall. And I talk, uh, I basically go over a lot of stories like I just did with you and stories as a cop and things that are in my book. Because mm-hmm. um, as much as people like listening this day and age to gangster stories, uh, they like hearing these these really good behind the scene cop stories. Because feel, feel good cop stories. Yeah, you know, everybody's behind the scenes, not the stuff that really hit the paper. You know, how it got to the paper. Right. And, you know, how much, uh, how, how did you go about reinventing yourself? Uh, that's a good question. You know, I was <laughs> he, tra- he comes up with one every once in a while. <laughs> you know, blind squirrel finds a nut. <laughs> he loves me, Mike. Don't worry about it. He loves me. We're going to go spoon afterwards. We're good. Again. <laughs> uh, you know, I was training my whole, my whole life, really, my whole career. And then it was just kind of like a natural progression. When I first got out, I did a little PR work, and it wasn't really wasn't for me, you know. Um, I wasn't into following cheating husbands or cheating <laughs> wives or none of that stuff. So I just uh, the TV show cheaters, yeah, you know, right. the guy running behind you with a camera. Right. That's why you and your wife never fought. Why you just put her, you just put her in a kimura, and that's it. <laughs> Argument over. Choke hold. Choke hold. That's right. That's right. Well, you're you you we've spoken on the on the on the phone and you actually know my instructor, George Enzo Gracie in Denville. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Good yeah. Guy. Yeah. He's, he's, he's a dangerous guy. And, yes. You know, he's just this little unassuming guy. I'll put you in a pretzel. Yeah. I know him a long time. Yeah. He's a good dude. Yeah. Exactly. Now where's, where's your academies on Staten Island? Staten Island. Nice. Yeah. And that seems to be thriving. Yeah. Cause I saw that picture you just took, you posted all your students. That probably yeah. wasn't even all your students. No, no, and, that, that was, yeah, that was recent. And, and Enzo Gracie was just there a couple of weeks ago. 
So you, 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 you should have brought Henzo with yeah, you. I know. I just Why try to. I try to take. Get him in here. I'll tell him he assaulted me. Go take him down. <laughs> Put him in a pretzel. He's like one of the guys that could just take me down one finger. You know. I wouldn't even. I, yeah, listen, okay. I've seen what these guys can do. 150 pound guy. I'm 230 pounds. They just they lock me up and just make me scream. <laughs> but they're the most calm guys in the world. They're yeah. the most calm guys in the world because- Because they're unassuming. They know they can just yeah. Oh, yeah. put you in a pretzel and yeah. stuff like that. So they look at guys like us and just go, <laughs> right. <laughs> so what's next for you? Uh, well, actually, they're trying to- A uh, uh, production company in Hollywood um, is trying to get my book to bought the right, own the right to the book, and they're trying to get it produced into a docu-series. I was going to oh. ask that if you got- Approached by any Hollywood executive. Yeah, well, like it that. was actually bought option, I want to say three times. De Niro, initially, when it first came out, De Niro and Spike Lee and Showtime bought it. Um, and they held it for quite about two years, and they never did anything with it. And then Brad Furman, uh, he did the Lincoln Lawyer and yeah, a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, I know he is. Yeah, Brad Furman optioned it. They owned it for about three years, and they couldn't get it done either. Um and now this production company in L.A. wants to make a docu-series out of it. Well, I, I had heard that Chaz Palminteri had some of the similar problems that you're having. There, people wanted to buy it, and they wanted to hold it, and they were, they, they were telling him this the movie's never going to get made. And right. So he, he, sort of, he sort of finagled it in such a way where he was broke. Like, he didn't have any money, and he held on to this beautiful script yeah. called Bronx Tale, which, you know, I'm sure growing up the way you did, you can sort of relate to in yep. certain ways. Yeah. So... Where uh, again? You you're on Inst. I know you're on Instagram. You're on Facebook. Yes. You want to give those out? Yeah, uh, the Instagram is um, well, Cadello Academy at Cadello Academy, and it's also I have two, and the other one is um, Alphaville 1988, and again the YouTube page is Mike Cadella up against the wall. We're going to put all those in our show notes, so make sure you go check those out. I have uh, I have not read Alphabet. I've, I've read excerpts because my book, Amazon, doesn't seem to want to deliver this to me for whatever reason. <laughs> I tried to read it before you came in there. Did you pay your bill, you cheap bastard? <laughs> Jesus. So much love in this room, isn't it? <laughs> you've seen a lot throughout your career, and you've seen a lot of different <clears throat> suffering. The one that you told us with the little kid, I mean, heartbreaking, and then a biker having sex was, jeez, I, I can't imagine well, all this We stuff. went through those stories, too. I don't know if you know Clint McGregor. No, he was he was NYPD. He was in the uh, seven five. Right? He wow. was in homicide. He was in homicide. He was a homicide sergeant. And he, he came he, in and told us a couple stories with with children. Uh, and children, right. oh, it's all hard disgusting. Part. Yeah. What do you think you've learned from seeing all this trauma throughout all of your life? Oh, uh, that's I, I. You know, I always say just regarding not only the tra- not only the trauma, but just life in general. That you know, it could be any one of us. It's a, like there before the grace of God with, with the mistakes that I've made as a kid and um, that we've all made. Well, you know, maybe different degrees of, of of ignorance that we had, but like there before the grace of God, we could easily be one of these guys looking for dope on the street or um, raise the kid in such a bad environment where the kid has no chance. You know, I, I think you have to you have, to have a little Sometimes you have to have a little common sense, but you have to be a little bit lucky too to make the right choices. Yeah, you know, what would we say? You're all we're all one step away from indictment, right? You know, you take one wrong step, you're getting indicted for something. You know, right? 
I enjoyed hearing all these stories because I, I am a I'm an avid historian of especially police work because some of these great stories and how they were worked and how from behind the scenes from the people who were there I think they're invaluable stories and I think they need to be told more and I know that's what you're doing with your YouTube channel I'm looking forward to seeing it you know and it's nice to hear from a guy like Mike who you know he has a genuine love for law enforcement it's, you know it's, it's not like you took the job. Like you. Right. To pay in the benefit. Yeah. Like you. He's Bergen County. <laughs> Listen, he's a Bergen County kid. Don't let him fool you. Bergen, Bergen County, they get paid. They get paid really, really well. No, but you know, like I said, you could tell he had a genuine love yeah. for the job. You know, and, and like yeah. I said, if you love what you're doing, you never work a day in your life. True. You know, I, like I said, just, just going in, it was, to me, it was hanging out with the guys. Right. And that's what you miss about it, probably. Right. You miss the clowns, not the circus. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's right. Mike, thank you so much for coming in today. This oh, you're has welcome. been very, very, not you. <laughs> not you. <laughs> We, I tried to give you the wrong address and you keep showing up here. You're like a lost penny. You always turn up. But I really do appreciate you coming in here and talking to us. And this has been very special for us, especially coming from our background. We love hearing this stuff. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks, guys. Yeah, and definitely. Thanks for coming. I appreciate it. It's great meeting you. That's going to do it for this episode of The Suffering Podcast. Follow Mike at under, Mike underscore Felace. Follow me at Real Kevin Donaldson. Don't forget to follow The Suffering Podcast. Go to thesufferingpodcast.com. Check out our challenge coins. They go to a worthy cause. They go to dentedevelopmentproject.com, which helps first responders and their families repair dents caused by suffering. And that's going to do it. We will see you on the next episode. Don't forget to hit that subscribe and like if you like what you're seeing. See you next time.